to the Prairie Pod. It's season two, episode one. I can't even believe that we're back for season two. Jess, can you believe it? I'm so excited, as always. I know. I'm so excited. And you're like new and improved, Jessica Peterson. Yep. New job title, switched roles, switched divisions. I'm now the invertebrate ecologist for the Minnesota Biological Survey, housed in the St. Paul Central DNR office, 500 Lafayette Road. Which means I get to see you less. That's true. That's true. But we hang out on the prairie. I know. And what better place to hang out than on the prairie? I'm still in the same job. I'm not new and improved. Maybe I maybe I am new and improved because I'm learning more all the time. So I'm new and improved regional ecologist. There you go. Always learning, getting better every day. And we're joined for this fabulous first episode with a very special guest. Kale, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, my name is Kale Nordmeyer. I'm a butterfly conservation specialist at the Minnesota Zoo. And thank you both for inviting me on day one of the Prairie Podcast, season two. I mean, what better day could we invite you on than day one, Kale? I feel very important. And we're recording at the zoo today, which is pretty exciting for us. We thought that we were going to get to record next to the baby TD monkey, but instead, Kale put us in a closet full of skulls. So <laughs> that's where we're at. <laughs> Just to specify, we're in one of our education classrooms where there are a lot of interesting interpretive elements that we have, including animal skulls. There's a bighorn sheep looking at me. It's the perfect place to record. It is the perfect place to record. We celebrate biology here at the Minnesota Zoo, and this is just some of that. <laughs> we're not it. here to talk about skulls today, though. No, no. We're Actually, here. not vertebrates in general. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> nice. We're here to talk about butterflies. I know. The episode title, and I really like this episode title, is A Lost Prairie Butterfly Gets Reintroduced to Minnesota. And I just love that because how is it lost? Where did it go? Mm. Was it not wearing its leash? When it was walking around with its parent and it didn't go to the right location? I just don't know. So Kale's going to tell us all about it. So we're going to talk about butterflies today and not just any butterflies. Kale first introduced me to these butterflies and told me that they're really just little big-eyed ones. And they're called skippers. So we're going to talk with him. He's going to tell us all about his work with rare butterflies and the reintroduction effort that's underway at Hole in the Mountain Prairie (coughs) in Lincoln County, Minnesota. So we want to start this season off the same way that we started last season off, and there's no better way to do that than with a quote from the man, the conservationist, the father of conservation, Aldo Leopold. So this is our quote to kick off season two. A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. Ooh, that's good. Resiliency. That's what comes to my mind. Diversity! Yep. I can't help, like, I yell it really loud because I get excited. (laughs) (laughs) And part of having resiliency and diversity is making sure that you don't lose the cogs and wheels, which is how we started last season, another Aldo Leopold quote, talking about how all the parts and pieces are all working together in the ecosystem, and we don't necessarily understand what might happen if we lose some of them. So that's why we're going to talk with Kale a little bit about these rare prairie butterflies and why it's so important to bring them back. But before we jump in, we want to know, Kelly, you do so many things. And so we want to hear a little bit about the work that you do. Yeah, well, so my position here at the Minnesota Zoo, again, I'm a prairie butterfly conservation specialist. So what does that mean? Well, the work that I do, along with my colleagues in the Prairie Butterfly Conservation Project, is to try to recover some of Minnesota's most imperiled butterflies by using techniques that we have at the zoo for rearing these endangered butterflies and then doing reintroduction planning to get them back out into sites that they used to occur in. 
Um, but as you mentioned before, we're working with a really interesting group of butterflies, the skippers, that are really, really poorly studied. We don't know much about this group of butterflies that are within the family Hesperiidae. And we're kind of writing the book as we go and we're studying them because even though butterfly reintroduction programs are not new among zoos, but working with the skippers definitely is. See, I'm so glad that I work in Minnesota because before I worked in Minnesota, I thought that Skipper was just like Barbie's friend who couldn't wear any of her shoes because her feet were so flat. So now I find out that they're actually these big-eyed butterflies that are super cool and way cooler than the doll Skipper. Sorry, Skipper. Barbie always had it going on. Not you. Too bad. <laughs> it's true. And now the butterfly Skipper sounds like it's just as cool. Well, cooler. Probably than, cooler. Yeah, yeah, cooler. It's like the Barbie version. Oh, okay, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, anyway, nice we'll just, I was trying to make a connection there. It didn't happen. Kale, how does one become... I'm bailing myself out. See how this is? I just picked up a shovel. Now I'm bailing myself out. How does one become a prairie butterfly conservation specialist? Well, I think it's just having a passion for these animals and understanding the diversity that's out in these or out in these prairie sites. My background, I'm somebody who's just always been really enthusiastic about invertebrates and the natural world. Even as a little kid, every log I wanted to turn over to see what cool macroscopic invertebrate community was there. Um, and a venue like the Minnesota Zoo was somewhere that was very natural for me to want to get a job at because I want to tell these stories and communicate that elsewhere. So the Minnesota Zoo became this great place for me to be able to really, really share this passion for invertebrates. And because this is a conservation-based organization, it's this venue to be able to study animals that really have never been studied before. And the zoo's part of state government, right? That's right. Like, We're a state agency. But I know. Partner. Partnership. Uh -huh. Like it. So, and this is not the first conservation project that the Minnesota Zoo has been involved with in terms of animal reintroduction and rearing with the DNR. This has happened before for swans, or trumpeter swans in the state, as well as reintroduction of bison at Miniopa and Blue Mountain State Park. That's awesome. It is awesome, and I like it because then you're, I can easily find you because you're in our state email system. <laughs> so, so I don't have to go somewhere separate. I love when we all Logistics, work together. Okay. Logistics, yeah. But it is nice to partner together because the zoo has so much knowledge and the DNR has so much knowledge. And I think Lisa Galvin-Inver always says, not one person has all the knowledge, resources, and know-how. And so this, when we partner, this is like the perfect example of bringing all of that together so that we make better projects and we make better conservation decisions. Partnership. Absolutely. Awesome. The synergy is really, really important. I like it. No one organization can do this alone. Synergy, 10 points, bonus word. <laughs> so some of our listeners might be in their car maybe they're sitting at their desk but can you describe just paint us a picture of what a skipper is why are they called a skipper right we keep saying this word right. skipper butterfly what does that what mean that? um so skipper so skippers are a true group of butterflies but they're one of the most diverse groups but we oftentimes overlook them so there's over 3200 described species of skippers 3200 3200 in the world there's, there's a lot of skipper species out wow. there they tend to be a little bit smaller than a lot of our other butterflies but they fly really really fast that's why they get the name skipper name where they will all of a sudden Jut really fast and they'll bounce from flower to flower like they're skipping along. How much smaller? Like, it's so if I have a monarch in my hand, not that I would ever put one in my hand because I don't want to injure it, but let's hypothetically, I have a monarch, it's landed on me naturally, and then I have a skipper, what's the size difference there? It might only be only about half the size, maybe a bit smaller. 
So Monarch might be two and a half to three inch wingspan um, across from tip to tip. But some of the skippers that we're studying, particularly ones that we're going to be talking about more today, the Dakota skipper and Powashik skipperling, are not large butterflies. So Dakota skipper, a little under two inch wingspan. Are they about the size of a quarter when their wings are folded? A little bit bigger. A little bit bigger than a quarter? They get okay. a little bit more than a quarter. So that's a, that's a good analogy. Maybe a silver dollar. A Susan B. Anthony. Yeah. Okay. They also sit really cool occasionally, like when they perch on a Oh, that's a really a good point. Yeah, so off, one of the key uh, uh, or, uh, ways to identify a skipper out in the field when they rest is they tend to rest with their wings at kind of this 45-degree angle where the hind wings lay flat, but the forewings, the wings in the front, are perched up a little bit more, so they look like a little fighter jet. That's the way we'll kind of describe it. Yep, I love that. They're pretty cute. That's the way I always describe it too, a jet mm-hmm. fighter. They look, and they just, they do. They look like they're about ready to just take off. Um, but my favorite element of the <laughs> is they've got these big doll eyes. Right. One of the synapomorphies <laughs> or unique characteristic among skippers is that they've got these really big heads. Almost doll-like heads. So compared to other butterflies, their head's going to be about as wide, sometimes even a little bit bigger than their thorax. And they've got these big, huge doll-shaped eyes to match. So they're a very, very cute butterfly. Now explain what a thorax is. That's the middle part of their body where their legs and wings are attached. Good. You're right. I've got to. I got to be careful there, Megan. And they have one more. um, Kale described as synapomorphy, like a a characteristic that defines the group: the club-shaped antennae. Yeah. Will be true for all butterflies. Right. Also true butterflies compared to the other. Moths, so they're in the greater order of insects, the Lepidoptera, or scaly-winged insects, and that includes all of your moths and butterflies. Within the butterflies, that all have clubbed antennas, so their antennas are smooth, but then rounded at the ends, compared to other moths that tend to have branching or feathered antennas. And then within the skippers, so they've got smooth, clubbed antennas, that then will kind of flare a little bit at the tips. It's a subtle thing, but... Oh, yep. man, as an entomologist, it's one of these things that you geek out over. And can you see it with the naked eye? So, like, you don't have to be... I'm not an entomologist. I'm an ecologist. Both E's, very different things. So, can I see it with the naked eye if I'm looking at these perched on a flower? Their Most clubbed species. antenna. Okay. Oh, you'll definitely see the clubbed antenna. But the little the little hook, maybe. Probably, if you look close enough. They have a hook? Yeah, this is what kids... Oh, the flares. flares. Okay, got it. I'm with you. I thought you meant, like, a... Like a pirate hook, and I was no, concerned. No, no. Got it. I'm with you. <laughs> These are things. Okay, so they seem pretty important. So what is the overall trend with butterflies in general in Minnesota? Like, why is it so important to focus on skippers and to bring them back? And are they following these other trends? So it was like three questions at once, but I know you can do it. I'm going to do my best. So unfortunately, the overall trend that these butterflies and skippers are following are the same trends that we're seeing with many of our other pollinators. I'm sure many of your listeners have already heard about many of the declines with bees and our other vital pollinator species. And unfortunately, butterflies are following these same trends where we're losing species and population numbers faster than we can record it. That is sad. It's a fairly dire situation. So when we started the Prairie Butterfly Conservation Program here at the zoo, we knew that we wanted to target Minnesota's most imperiled species. So when we were deciding which species we wanted to focus on, they were the ones that had, whose populations had declined the most rapidly. 
I get this question a lot. How long have Dakota Skipper, how long have we known that Dakota Skipper populations have been in decline? So I've mentioned two species so far, Dakota Skipper and Powashik Skipperling. Dakota, we've been kind of watching for a while. It's a prairie specialist species, and because so much of our prairie has already been converted, only about 1% to 2% in the state is remaining. So we know that their populations have already dramatically declined. That's not a new thing. This conversion has happened a long time ago. Uh, what's new, though, is that even within the protected prairie sites, so the little remnants where Dakota skippers have been in, they've been disappearing. And that's only been really recorded since the early 2000s. So this is a really new thing that we're losing them now in what seems to still be good habitat. And, and sufficiently so, sized habitat, right? I mean, these aren't small remnants that we're talking about. They're a couple thousand acres. Even the bigger sites. And right. these butterflies don't need a lot of space. So, but you asked, or um, Jessica, you asked about how quickly have we known mm -hmm. about these declines? Well, we've known that there was one mass decline across the range, but even within the little protected sites, that's just in the last 15, 20 years. And that's what's been so alarming about Dakota Skipper. We never thought that it was going to decline as fast as it did. And Powashik Skipperling, the situation has been even worse and even more rapid. This was probably Minnesota's most predictable butterfly species up until the last 15 years. And it's really fallen off the face of the earth uh, to the point where we don't know of any remnant populations left in Minnesota. And the heart of its range used to be in the state. Right. We and actually can't even say that for any other butterfly species. And when you say predictable, you mean that we were most likely to find it. Like It was like going outside and you almost expect to see a robin. You go outside this time of year and you just, you're going to see a robin. That's just one of these things. You just know that you're going to see it. So a lot of butterfly researchers just assumed that they were always going to be able to see Powashik skipperlings. If you went out to a prairie site, they were oftentimes in the ditches. And it was one of these things that just nobody thought, wait a minute, how on earth could we lose Powashik? To the point where now, yeah, we believe that they're extirpated. They're probably completely gone from Minnesota. Which is really, really disheartening. And they're both, they're two, I don't know if we said this, but they're two federally listed species now they're as now. well. Um, so as the of Dakota 2014. Is, right. So the Dakota is federally threatened and the Powashik is federally endangered, which both, neither, neither status is good. It means no. that they're declining and that we have a lot of work to do to figure out why. So... Enter the partnership between the Minnesota Zoo and the Department of Natural Resources. Give us a little bit of background on how do you do a Dakota Skipper reintroduction, especially knowing what you just said earlier, that we have some of these sites that seem like they're really good habitat, but they're kind of winking out. So how right. do you launch a reintroduction knowing or not knowing so many things. Yeah, well, so I'll back up just a little bit. So before we even got into the reintroduction, we had to figure out how to do this. How could we start even doing zoo-raised or, or Dakota skipper butterflies at the Minnesota Zoo? Um, so first identifying that this was even something to do, I think one of the most important aspects of our project was at the very beginning, bringing in a lot of our other collaborators, so folks with the Minnesota DNR, Fish and Wildlife Service, as well as other regional experts that just already knew about these butterflies, and working with an organization called the Conservation Breeding Specialist Group, where they were able to help facilitate a meeting and figure out what is going to be the best conservation strategy to recover Dakota skippers. And what was identified first, after going through this meeting and the structured decision-making process, was to just do insurance population. 
So when I say insurance population, have the skippers living at a place that we can maintain genetic populations in case they blink out for more sites. Because that's what kind of keeps happening at these sites out in the field where you'll have what right. looks like a really healthy remnant prairie with lots of skippers in it. You do a year of surveys, they do great. And then the next year, you never see them again. And because these butterflies really can't travel between prairie sites anymore, they're not like a big monarch that can travel hundreds of miles in its life. They are pretty kind of homebodies. They tend to only kind of stay within the same maybe 300 meters their entire life. And 300 meters is even kind of pushing it. Right. They can't get between the separate prairies. And so if they blink out from one site, they're never going to be able to recolonize without somebody doing something about it. So the very first thing that we identified that we were going to need to do for our project was to establish this insurance population here at the zoo where we could continually keep breeding them. So at least genetically, they occur somewhere. But right. the overall goal was not to always have them just living in Apple Valley at the Minnesota Zoo. We wanted to get them out. So the program is a relatively new conservation program here at the Minnesota Zoo. We started this in 2012 and collected our first Dakota skipper eggs in 2013. Where did you collect those eggs from? So the original founders that we have actually came from some sites um, in uh, northeast South Dakota, <laughs> north of Watertown. That's what started our population here. We're raising them up and learning a lot about them. So it's kind of interesting with the Dakota skipper. The caterpillars have never been observed in the wild. <laughs> so a lot of what we now know about these skippers we've had to learn here at the zoo to figure out what their needs are and how to optimize rearing protocols for these skippers so the first three years of the program was just learning how to, how to do it <laughs> and if you've ever so i remember kale when this first got started was <laughs> attending one of our native plant community trainings i think justice might have even been pre-jess mm -hmm. pj yep. pj pre-jessica <laughs> and I, Kale was attending day one. Everything was fine. Totally normal. Totally happy to be on the prairie learning prairie plants. Day two, you just see the zoomobile and Kale waving, I've got to go! The caterpillars have emerged! He's <laughs> just on his way out because all predictions, as far as I could tell, they weren't supposed to emerge until much later. He thought he had plenty of time and then all of a sudden they surprised him and you're kind of trying to learn as you go with one of the rarest butterflies in the world. And so that's no pressure, Kale, no pressure. It's a humbling experience, and it is sort of horrifying to think about, Some, in some cases, a third of a species potentially in our lap. How do you feel that's about having the thing. weight of that on your shoulders? feel pretty good about it? It's, it varies <laughs> on the day. That's why there's lots of you. Luckily, it's not just you. There's Eric as well and Eric the others. And Emily, so um, as also part of our team is Dr. Eric Runquist and Emily Royer. So we're a three-person team here at the zoo. That's great. And there's Robert Dana, butterfly specialist extraordinaire right. at the Department of Natural Resources and now Jessica Peterson. Right. Yeah, we're excited to continue this work and through this summer and beyond and... It's fun stuff, that's for sure. Well, so now to circle back to your question, now where do we get this, or going with the reintroduction? So really, after our first few years, figuring out this process, figuring out what we need for the Dakota skippers and to rear them in a zoo setting, and what's been amazing is it's been successful, and we've been able to grow our populations every year. So Dakota skipper, it's one a generation per year, so it takes them a whole year to go from a caterpillar 
They actually overwinter as a half-grown caterpillar out in the Minnesota prairies. Here at the <laughs> Minnesota Zoo, we replicate that condition actually in a refrigerator. It looks very weird, but it's what's been working for us. <laughs> You're cooling your butterfly caterpillars. Right. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Wake them up in the spring. They finish their development, become uh, pupa, chrysalis uh, by about mid-June become an adult butterfly middle of the summer and now we're currently going into the next generation now with the new hatchlings uh didn't you so, show us um sorry i keep interrupting because i just get so excited so i love that you're excited I, I think two years ago you invited us on uh some department of natural resources folks got to come to the zoo and we got to think about the work that you're doing but actually see it in action so we got to see little caterpillars uh just, I mean, I would like to say they were doing lots of exciting things, but they were mostly just sitting at the bottom of prairie grasses eating, right? So they just kind of spend their time at the base of like prairie drop seed or some little blue stem and they're just munching. They're not mo very mobile, are they? I, I don't know what else you expect them to do. <laughs> they're just, cute enough as it is, Megan. I mean, they're chubby and cute, but you just described it as they're pulling down. This is the cutest description of a caterpillar I have ever heard and I wanted to sit all day and watch them doing this. They just pull down the stem of the grass so instead of actually having to move at all, they just use their little hands. I mean, they're not hands, but they just lose their, use their little hands and they pull down the grass and they just sit there and put it in their mouth and munch on it, not moving at all. They're like chubby little prairie couch potatoes. That's a wonderful way to put it, and they're adorable. Them. But you're right. You just mentioned, so they are, they're grass feeders. They eat native bunch grasses like prairie drop seed and little blue stem, side oats grama. One of their favorites here in the lab has been porcupine grass. Oh, it um, also, just so people know, not to get too botany nerd here, but an early cool season grass that's super duper important to have on your dry prairie sites as well as prairie drop seed which is bunch grass creates lots of space and it's also home to chubby little caterpillars that's right so they are a shelter builder the larvae or the caterpillars spin uh or make a little volcano shaped tube that they live in right at the base of the grasses it only gets to be about an inch tall but this is then their protection this is what's protecting them from predators it becomes very difficult to even find them when they're in there but kind of what all you'll see them do is they'll occasionally grab a little grass blade, as you just said, Megan. <laughs> Snip it at the base, drag it into their little shelter. Ideally, they don't even leave the shelter, and you'll just see this little grass blade slowly descend into their shelter as they eat it. This is the best thing ever. And it's so. What do they make their shelter cute. out of? Well, the grasses. So the nice. dead grasses, right where they live. But like most other butterfly caterpillars, they make silk from glands in their mouth. So they'll stitch that together with the silk that they're producing. And they'll make three or four different shelters as they grow and get bigger. But they'll be in a shelter pretty much the whole time. So talk to us about the release. So right. you've grown these guys up. You're ready to let them go Fun. out into the wild. What? Talk to us about that. But you're not releasing them as caterpillars, right? No. And we still don't know what they're doing as caterpillars. But so the first few years of the program was just growing up our population here at the zoo. And now we feel like we have enough that we can start dispositioning them back to the wild. Dispositioning. Dispositioning. Like so starting planning this reintroduction process. So the first part that went into is identifying a place. So we still don't know exactly why they've disappeared from 
from these prairie sites that they went from. So in some ways this is a guessing game, but we're trying to make our best guesses on ways that we can make this successful as possible and release them at areas that we kind of have reasons why we think they might have disappeared from those first locations and went through another series of criteria that we wanted to meet for our first reintroduction site. So for our very first reintroduction site, you guys already said this at the beginning of the podcast, mentioned Hole in the Mountain Prairie Preserve. This is Nature Conservancy property just south of Lake Benton, Minnesota for our very first reintroduction site. So this is a site that we know Dakota skippers were doing very, very well at up until about 2008 was the last time that we know that they were seen there. And then surveys kind of didn't happen for a few years. Surveys didn't pick up again until 2012, so somewhere between 2008 and 2012, the butterflies totally disappeared from that location. And we're still trying to study and figure out what was going on there, but we chose this site because, one, we wanted it to be a site that we knew that the butterflies were gone from, because we didn't want to interrupt or disrupt any existing populations. We wanted to um, also make sure that there was good floral communities there. And right now, the floral communities and grass composition, so really, really high levels of plant diversity still occur at Hole in the Mountain Prairie Preserve. So that was fabulous. Have a wonderful relationship with the Nature Conservancy that's managing the actual unit that were there, as well as neighbors with the DNR that are also nearby, because we want this to grow into populations. The other neighbors that were really important to work with was the city of Lake Benton itself. So one of the things that ranked this site so high was the cooperation that we were getting with the basically the local community and people taking an interest in Lake Benton. So all these things are what added up to the calculus of pick Hole in the Mountain as our very first spot. And again, that just started in 2017. So you talked about the grasses that these caterpillars need. Mm-hmm. You touched a little bit about the floral community. Talk about a little bit about the biology of what species, what floral species, what forms do the adults need? Yeah, so for a lot of butterflies, a lot of butterflies are really, really specific as caterpillars in what the caterpillars can eat, but not too specific about what flowers they can visit. Dakotas seem to be almost the opposite of this. We know that they can eat a number of different grass species, so having a high diversity of grasses in the environment it seems to be very, very important. But also what's really important is the having the right floral diversity or, or flowers that are at the site. Yeah, in our part of the range, pale purple or narrow leaf cone flower seems to be one of the most important species for these butterflies and seemingly having high concentrations of it. Not just its presence, but high concentrations seems to be really important for Dakota skippers. For the botaniners out there, that's Echinacea angustifolia. Because <laughs> there are three different species of, well, purple cone flower. And so I just want to make make it clear that the Minnesota one is Echinacea angustifolia. That's our only true native, native coneflower, purple coneflower. Yeah. So I'm really I've always been really fascinated about this. Mm-hmm. But like what is it about the nectar that is so fascinating to them? We still don't know right. exactly what that is or what is happening that why this one flower seems to be the most important in this part of the range now part of the dakota skipper range is actually slightly outside of angustifolia's range Uh, so further north in northern north dakota you end up getting into a whole different type of habitat where they seem to prefer black-eyed susans um, at least here at the zoo, totally we know different plant. Yeah, totally different plant. Here's my theory. 
theory. Oh, I just developed it just now. So you know how in Purple Coneflower, you can dismiss this theory, but this is this is my theory. So they're kind All of theories a, are valid, Megan. Well, they're kind of an orangey, yellowish butterfly. And so Purple Coneflower, the center of it, the cone mm. part, is orangish. And as you move into the North Dakota range for Black Eyed Susan, it also can get kind of an orangey, yellowish cast. Maybe they're camouflaging. Well, it so has nothing to do with nectar. Not only do they use the plants for nectar, but they also perch. Right. So, on these so that's really interesting. These skippers, the, are, the males are really territorial. They right. almost seem to have a lecking behavior where the males will guard one little patch mm-hmm. and then are probably the ones that will breed with the females if they've been able to successfully defend that patch. So it may just be that they can feed on a variety of flowers but there's something about cone flowers that they've said hey everybody this is where we're going to congregate (laughs) to we're going to hang out at the cone flower patch and this way we know we can find each other on the landscape because historically as the prairies would be changing from season to season as new disturbances like bison roaming through or fire coming through and burning certain patches you now get differences in the floral compositions that and the butterflies were probably following these disturbances so coneflower might just be the signal hey everybody let's gather here so that they don't just disperse and never find one another during their relatively short two and a half week adult period flight period it's a long life um and we're actually hoping to um (laughs) (laughs) sarcasm well, you say that well, sarcastically. It's a year. They're I know, I know, but as a as a winged adult, you gotta say winged. People know there's a ed on. The I mean, end. you already mentioned that like <laughs> the prairie couch potato phase. Right. That was almost a year. That sounds like, like an amazing. I, phase. I know. So they're only active for two and a half weeks. I mean, this is the best exercise plan on the planet. I'm gonna be a chubby couch potato caterpillar for the better part of a year, and then for two and a half weeks, I'm gonna move. And get some things done, and then make more butterflies. <laughs> but this is part of the huge challenge with this species and and other insects mm-hmm. that we know very little bit about their the rest of their life aside from that two and a half weeks when we can see them very easily, and it right. looks like that's the only time they're active. Mm-hmm. But really, they're doing all this other stuff that we just don't even understand. Oh, it's cool stuff. Don't get me wrong. I know. I know. I just think cool. it's. I just think it's fascinating. <laughs> I just like when they build their little hut. I like all of it. Okay. Um, I could talk to you and Jess about, I could nerd out with you about butterflies and insects all day, but we're running out of time, so we can't. Um, tell us really quickly some of the interesting things you're finding out and what do you think the future holds for rare butterflies in the state of Minnesota? Mm -hmm. I know, big ending questions here for this first section. No, those are really, really important questions. Again, this is a really new program here at the Minnesota Zoo that we've just started, involving a lot of partners, but we've learned a ton in the short time that we've been doing this with Dakota Skippers. And right now, the overall plan is to get Dakota Skippers back out into all these sites that they've disappeared from. Uh, Right now in Minnesota, there's only one naturally occurring site that we know that they're still at. The goal is to reintroduce them back at all of those locations. That's a lofty goal. I have no idea. very lofty goal. How many sites is that? I don't know exactly. (laughs) Okay. It seems like a lot. Like, to be one of the most, you know, as you described it earlier, I'm going to go out, I'm going to see a robin. To be like a robin of the butterfly world, and now you're going to repopulate them to everywhere... Like, if you're thinking about it in terms of Robin, that everywhere a robin once was, but everywhere a power sheik once was, that's... You have to aim big. Yeah. 
I do know this about Kale. He this is high high standards. That's I okay. Like That's a good thing. I think it's great. I'm but impressed. You ask, do you think we're going to be able to do this? And I think that with all of our partners, and so long as that we're able to all work together to solve these problems, absolutely. That, I know that sounds super idealistic. No, I just almost love dismissively it. so. <laughs> no, I, you have That's to be awesome. positive in this field, or we're not going to get anywhere. Right. Because there's so many things I think that we don't understand, and there's so many data gaps, and there's there's. You know, when people ask, well, what's the cause of this? It's usually never just one thing because ecosystems are complicated. So it's lots of interacting things that end up causing declines or problems. So I like that you're saying that it's also got to be lots of us working together to try to fix those problems. And we know from other reintroduction programs that we've been able to recover other species here in Minnesota. So I think that there's a great future for Dakota Skipper and Powashik Skipperling. I like it. Jess, you think it's time to move to, uh... Yep, I do. Let's science do the literature! Oh my gosh, we have so many things that we could science about today. So this is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper, or all three. And so we're going to have Jess cover some of the science that we need to know about skippers and rare butterflies in general. And Kale is going to be a commentator on that. Jess, take it away. So we've got we've covered some of the biology of this species. Uh, we've we've barely touched on the Powashik skipperling, but there's a couple fact sheets out there. There's one uh, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Dakota skipper fact sheet, and then there's some fact sheets from the zoo. Right, Kale, I encourage anybody to that? check out the um, MinnesotaZoo.org um, and click on the conservation link to learn more about the work that we're doing here for these imperiled skippers. So. The second uh, paper I want to talk about today is one in a um, freely accessible um, journal called PLOS Biology. The title is Resurrection and Resilience of the Rarest Butterflies. I'm really interested to get Kale's perspective on this paper today. It's by Nick Haddad. I saw Nick speak um, a couple years ago at the university. He's a really great speaker and he studies some of the rarest butterflies in North America, probably the world. And he, this paper is more of a commentary. It's more of just him kind of chit-chatting about his thoughts on rare butterflies. And um, he talks about stamp collecting in there a little bit. So, you you know, you get a whole gamut of things in this paper. <laughs> um, so he looked at rare butterflies and discovered some interesting trends among the rare butterflies that he was looking at among the species. Rare butterflies are becoming even more rare, was the first thing that he noted, um, which I think would be the case for these butterflies, especially Dakota skipper. It's kind of always been rare and it's becoming rare, maybe not so much for Powashik skipperling. Many of the rare species of butterflies that he found through his kind of literature searching are species that depend on habitat that require disturbance. Again, these species require disturbance. We haven't talked about management at all yet today, um, but you'll find some of that in these fact sheets, some management um, implications. So things in Nick noted in this paper, things like fire, flooding, grazing are all disturbances, natural disturbances. We're not talking about putting in subdivision here, um, but natural <laughs> disturbances that the prairie requires in order to not become forest. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, that's important here. There have been a lot of, there's a lot of literature and discussion and talk about whether or not fire impacts these species. So I, I think the jury is still out in part. Obviously, if you're um, running a fire, a really hot fire through a prairie during a really vulnerable part of this species life, 
it could kill some of them. But they also require that the, the effects of fire, which is often to increase the forbs mm -hmm. um, for their survival. So it's this butterfly paradox that often people talk about. So often the case with disturbance is that you get this Goldilocks zone. Right. Too much is bad, too little is bad. You need just the right amount. That's really good. So my favorite quote from this paper, kind of along those same lines, is uh, um, it goes, Restricting disturbance to prevent harm is akin to of mice and men's Lenny squeezing a puppy, loving populations to death. So <laughs> if we, we, we want to care for these and we want to protect these butterflies really, really carefully and please don't burn them, but we, ha we have to use some sort of disturbance to um, protect the habitat that they so depend on. Super important. I like the Goldilocks. That's really good. Okay, so the last paper that I want to talk about today is this Dearborn and Westwood paper from 2014 predicting adult emergence of Dakota skipper and Powashik skipperling. So we've kind of talked about that they have a really short adult lifespan. So you want to be able to make sure that if you're going to go out and monitor for these guys that you've got to catch that window two and a half weeks. And it varies by like two weeks, the start emergence. That's like, you're just guessing, right? Unless we use some math. And you know, I love math. I love math. Right? I couldn't help it, I really do. So, knowing when to serve is a challenge, so we gotta use some math. So we can use the, the these degree day models. And so, you, you know, there's a lot of variables that go into these models. You can read the paper and judge for yourself. In the paper, they talk about what they did in Manitoba, but they also talk about what a, co a similar study that was done that's not published in Minnesota did to develop degree day models. So you can get all kinds of info there. If you want to learn to know when to go out and survey for these guys, you should get yourself a degree day model. Kale uses degree day models. We use degree day models. That's awesome. Um, I've got to plan our entire summer where I'm simultaneously trying to do Dakota skipper reintroductions, Powashik skipperling reintroductions, <laughs> collecting Dakota skipper eggs from the field, Powashik skipperling eggs from the field, over a span of about 1,500 miles, including <laughs> six different states and one Manitoba, uh, or and then also including Manitoba, and we only have about two weeks to do all of this work, so we've got to plan this all out. So having a good model in place just is good planning sense. My guess is you have a model and a spreadsheet. There's a lot of Ghent charts going. <laughs> and yes. three people. <laughs> yeah, three people. We have, just, to, we have to simultaneously try to be in multiple places right. at once. Clone sometimes. yourselves, yeah. So just in general, what a degree day model does, it just takes the accumulating degree days that are above a certain threshold. The average temperature is above a certain threshold. And then you can you can know, given that threshold, when to go out. And the theory behind why these things work is because a lot of the time insect right. development is highly correlated with temperature. Right. Thanks for that, Kale. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess. Take a hike. I think I will. And what better place to start out our hike than at the Minnesota Zoo? And from here, I'm gonna leave, and I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna go to the prairie. <laughs> so. We have mentioned two of the prairies that we're going to talk about today before, but it's worth mentioning again because now you know all the awesome rare butterfly conservation work that is happening in this area. So the ones that I'm going to start with are the Hole in the Mountain Prairies. And so we did mention those season one, episode five, what goes in the mix makes the cake. That was our restoration series, building a seed mix, hollow back to season one. So <laughs> forward, we still want to spend as much time as possible at Hole in the Mountain. It's actually 
two units managed by two different entities, but all part of your public lands. So as always, the prairies that we're gonna mention today are part of your rich Minnesota natural heritage, and we encourage you to get out anytime and go visit them because they're yours, you're a landowner, you own it, and you also might see a rare prairie butterfly while you're walking. So the Hole in the Mountain Wildlife Management Area is in Lincoln County. It's about 638 acres of grassland. It's got remnant prairie. It's got wetlands. It's got all kinds of cool stuff going on out there. As Jess likes to say, vistas. It's Love got it. the vistas. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. It's really hill prairie at its finest. You're going to need some sturdy shoes and a lot of water and sunblock. Because the thing about being on a hill prairie is that it is windy, which is nice. It's nice and breezy, but you get dehydrated before you even realize it. So if you have a headache, get some water, people. <laughs> Stay safe out there on the prairie. So right next door to that is the hole in the mountain. I don't know why you're laughing. Water is important. It's important to stay hydrated while you're hiking. Safety message 101. I think it's very important. <laughs> so right next to the wildlife management area is the Nature Conservancy Preserve. And this is where the butterfly work is happening. We should mention that over at the DNR site, there is also regal fritillaries over there. And so we've got all kinds of rare butterflies just hanging out, doing their thing. But the Nature Conservancy site is about 1,364 acres. It is a large prairie remnant, and it is on a steep valley along the outer edge of a glacial escarpment known as the Prairie Coteau. Coteau. Oh, you say it so much better than I do. Say it again, <laughs> I'm Jess. Just say it again. Oh my gosh. One time only. How can we learn? I wanted to clap it out with you, <laughs> just like we do when we're pronouncing stuff in grade school. Well, well, well. You can find that site on the Nature Conservancy's Preserve website. And so it is, it has lots of wildflowers during the summer, undulating terrain for sure, prairie dependent insects, 25 species of butterfly, waterfowl, grassland birds. It's got it all, people. Love it. <laughs> I love it. It's absolutely beautiful. Jess was stunned. That dramatic pause there was for everybody to just take in. We were imagining our time yeah. out at Hole in the Mountain last year. It was a pretty good time. I wasn't there. Oh. You and Kale were there. Oh, that's right. I was imagining my time with Kale out there last summer. <laughs> Not with Jessica. <laughs> so it was just, I mean, for a second you guys were interchangeable. I was like moving. My time. Yeah. I was moving to St. Paul. You were moving. So Kale and I had to enjoy it for you. Which we did. Um, as always, we ask our guest to pick their, not necessarily favorite prairie to peruse, but a pick that they have for your public lands. Kale, what is your pick? Well, I'll be honest. I feel a little Sophie's Choice here, <laughs> largely because there are so many amazing underappreciated prairie sites here in Minnesota that I just want everybody to get out and enjoy and appreciate their subtle beauty. Um, but because... Um, Jessica and Megan here had such a bad experience. I want at this one site, I want to revisit this because it just, <laughs> I love this location. Glacial Lake State Park. You would. He doesn't want to leave it with a bad name. No. I, it's we just, didn't this... say it has a bad name. We're just not going to camp there. <laughs> it's a great, Glacial Lake State Park is fabulous. It's very beautiful. A lot of fishers. <laughs> A lot of fishers. <laughs> so a few things to add to that. I have camped at the site many times. It's a wonderful, beautiful site to camp at. I've never once seen a fisher, and I would actually be really excited to see a fisher there. We have fishers here at the Minnesota Zoo. They're amazing, really cool animals, and I love watching them, and I would be honored if one came to visit me. But I love Glacial Lakes. This is an amazing site. It's been really well managed 
beautiful rolling hills, great floral communities, and again, another site that has some really rare insects at that as an enthusiast, oh man, it's a great site to geek out at and just appreciate what Minnesota used to look like. You just feel like Mm -hmm. you're somewhere in just in another time. That's right. You can squint a little bit and then you don't see the roads. But that's what's so beautiful with this site that you don't even need to do that. When you're in these valleys and caves at this site, you don't need to squint. You just are in this amazing prairie. Love it. It's a fabulous site. I recommend that everyone check out Glacial Lake State Park. I mean, two things that I want to say to that (laughs) in response. Number one, the fishers at the zoo are behind a wall, if I'm not mistaken, (laughs) and you are not having an up-close encounter with them. Number two, fishers are are amazing i'm turning this into a three things number just not outside my tent at night when i think that they're trying to eat me which of course they can't do because they're too small so <laughs> number three well, of course everyone should res- give or be very respectful of the space that you offer a fisher if you are fortunate enough to see one in the wild yes i will i will learn to think of that as being fortunate you know what's funny is the year after that we were at it a prairie training mm-hmm. again in northwest Minnesota, and a family of fishers ran across the road. Jess and I were driving, and we were like, they know where we are! Yeah, they know where we is. are everywhere! <laughs> like, it was, I mean, and we talked to people at the training, and they were like, I have never seen right. one. You guys are so lucky. And they had babies with them, and we got to see them really Aww. close, and they are adorable. And I will tell you... from inside the car. Yeah, from inside the car. It was I mean, a maybe magical... maybe not quite skipper cute, but no, baby fishers are uh, It was cute. a magical experience. It looked like Inchworms. It was. It was magical. Inch. Number three. We love inchworms too, though. Well, that's true. Inchworms <laughs> are really awesome. <laughs> Number three. I'm getting this in here. Is that I do want to say a shout out to Glacial State Parks staff. They are amazing, as all of our Minnesota State Parks staff are. I'm always impressed, no matter what, no matter what experiences I'm having at a state park with a fisher, without a fisher. Our state parks are some of the best in the nation, and the people who work there make sure that your experience is going to be excellent. And that is something that makes me proud to live in this state. We also have to give a shout out to the funding source for this project for Dakota Skipper and Imperiled Butterfly um, Reintroduction and Biology and Monitoring. All was funded by the Minnesota Environment and Natural Resources Trust Fund. And startup for the zoo's uh, rearing was from the Legacy Amendment. So all of these wonderful Minnesota dollars going to fabulous projects. More things that make this state one of the best in the nation. One of the best! That's why I moved here. Transplanting into Minnesota. Can't help myself. Oh, as always, you can catch all the resources that we have talked about today, including the Let's Science section and our Take a Hikes on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. And we're not done. We're just getting started. Season two on a roll from the Minnesota Zoo. Next week, where will we be? Probably in a regular office. So (laughs) we will catch you next time on Prairie Tuesday on the Prairie Pod, where we are going to be talking about long-term management for restorations. We'll answer some of your most burning questions. What tool do I use? How often? And can't I just leave that prairie alone? We're going to be joined by Assistant Regional Wildlife Manager Joseph Stangle and Area Wildlife Manager Janine Vorland, and we guarantee you won't want to miss it because it will be at least fair to Midland. We'll catch you <laughs> next time on the Prairie Pod. All right, let's go check out the fishers. All right, Kill, show us the way. All right. Check you later. <laughs> Bye.